when people uh, disdain romanticism, I say, you know, think about the preservation of nature and the love for the wild. That's a gift that we owe directly to both Rousseau and the people who followed him in the Romantic movement. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Well, we've been talking about romanticism. We're leading up still to Valentine's Day and thought we'd put people in the romantic mood. But of course, you pointed out at the end of the last episode not really put him in the romantic mood the way we normally think about it. But this whole idea of romanticism is fascinating. We talked about the origins springing up from folklore and what a romance language is, nationalism. And we talked a little bit about Shakespeare and Gothic romance last time. Forgot to mention last time, uh, a popular expression of Gothic romance today is all these zombie infatuation yeah shows like what is it the walking dead is that yeah i have to say i've never seen the show i'm completely out of it me neither i can't stand that sort of thing but a lot of people love it yeah well watching a bunch of reanimated dead people walk around is just unsavory enough i just can't really get into that whole aspect of it but i do like gothic romance in general but yeah that's definitely an expression we see today isn't it yeah and, and halloween which is a very gothic holiday mm -hmm. um here on bainbridge island it's become a recent tradition for people to do a uh, performance of the zombie dance from michael jackson's thriller oh yeah that's the climax of the afternoon when people dressed up in shrouds and with blood all over and stuff and they play thriller and do the whole dance and you can find that on youtube anywhere and people are always doing that it always struck me as so paradoxical and then when you looked at michael jackson you did not think horrible monster creepy guy except maybe if you knew about the rumors about his private behavior but he looked like a very wholesome even happy <laughs> sort of a clean-cut guy yeah right and come to think of it isn't frankenstein just a stitched together zombie he's a reanimated corpse in the movies you know in the novel he's amazingly handsome and quite articulate yeah uh, he's intelligent uh, you know he has a temper with <laughs> good reason um but he's not this that's the james whale frankenstein from the movies that sort of just grunts and mutters and is you know has the bolts in his neck by the way not bolts those were terminals so that uh, they could attach the uh, electrical charge to him to zap him into life a lot of people don't know that naturally i made the uh, common error in english usage which people can look up in the book by calling Frankenstein the monster. Right. <laughs> Frankenstein is not the monster. Frankenstein is the doctor. In the original, yes. He's Frankenstein's monster, but popular culture has uh, changed the name over it to be the name of the monster, so we're kind of stuck with that now, I think. 
And the correct pronunciation would be Frankenstein, not uh, like uh, Mel Brooks's doctor, played by Gene Wilder, who insisted his name was Frankenstein. Well, that was a great joke, you know. I <laughs> yeah. actually write about this in the book, the way that especially Jewish names from Germany in this country switch from Stein to Steen frequently, but not in any regular fashion. So it's mm-hmm. impossible that when you run across a new name that ends with that, uh, to know is it going to be a Steen or a Stein and I think that's the joke that uh, Mel Brooks is making in that movie yeah. that uh, people are always having to correct people no it's not Stein it's Steen <laughs> if you look at the EI combination and we're playing our German pronunciation it would be Stein yeah I know it would be Frankenstein Stein <laughs> okay well let's talk more about romanticism we went through gothic romance talked about some of the origins of that and some of the masterpieces of that genre but what about medievalism that's the next topic in your essay on romanticism right and i mentioned this earlier in the first broadcast where we were talking about the fact that the enlightenment had disdained the medieval period they thought of it all as being the dark age you know and when i was first studying history they said well the first part of the middle ages is the dark ages after the fall of rome and then starting the 11th 12th century you get the high middle ages now there's a tendency to just deconstruct the whole thing and the most colleges you'll be taught well i was taught the high middle ages was actually early modern period um, going on into the renaissance they tried to erase some of the distinctions between the middle ages and the renaissance I don't think all that convincingly, but I understand their point. However, by the time you get to the 18th century, there is definite disdain for things medieval. Um, People are looking back at those old King Arthur romances and saying, boy, that's barbaric stuff, really not worth reading. And uh, looking at the Gothic churches and thinking that they're terribly ugly and ignore true standards and disdaining the whole idea of uh, medieval Catholicism. And Voltaire, of course, one of my favorite Enlightenment writers, uh, just heaping contempt on traditional Catholic belief wherever he can. And then Romanticism marks a backlash against that in the arts. And it's not that they go back and become medieval. It's that now medievalism is um, the way like Victorianism is today. And people will sometimes decorate their houses in Victorian fashion and dress up. And of course, steampunk is a kind of blend of science fiction and Victorian um, or Edwardian fashion. When you take a period like that and have fun with it, celebrate it but you're not really inhabiting it anymore you're you're living outside of it but trying to dress up and make believe with it that's what the romantics did with the middle ages they did build a lot of gothic churches they also built fake castles and neuschwanstein being the most famous is the inspiration for snow white's castle in the disney parks was not built in the middle ages built by a mad ludwig was uh, trying to live a fantasy life of the medieval period. Um, The revival of the stories of Robin Hood, which were very much folk literature, not something that uh, high literary types paid any attention to until the 19th century, and uh, taking a lot of disparate elements, old stories, knitting them together, uh, making the legend of Robin Hood a, a very important one. 
later in the movies, of course. And of course, a huge resurgence of interest in King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. So all of that becomes an extremely important part of literary culture at the time. So you have the rise of, uh, especially Sir Walter Scott, um, I've been trying to reread Ivanhoe, which I had to read as a ninth grader mm. back in the 50s, and uh, finding it a bit of a slog. It's something I have on my phone that I look at when I'm stuck and don't have an Internet connection. <laughs> and I've got about two-thirds of the way through it, um, set in the Middle Ages and very much attacking corrupt monks and priests and evil knights and you know fair damsels and all that. The innovative thing it has about it is, of course, it tries to attack anti-Semitism and celebrate some Jewish characters for a change. But uh, in the 19th century, you know, Sir Walter Scott was the author. Uh, talk about Shakespeare's plays being made into operas. Scott had a huge number as well. And um, he was translated in all major languages. He made his way into Russia, where there was a lot of fandom for Scott. He's almost forgotten today. There are far more people that know the operas based on Scott than who ever read a Scott novel. There was a transformation at the beginning of the 20th century where that took place. And it's noted in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse in an uh, early scene in that novel where um, they were inside her father's mind, the figure that stands in for her own father, who was very much somebody who thought a lot about the Middle Ages and, and a lot about the Romantic period. And he's struck to the heart to hear that nobody reads Scott anymore that he's considered old-fashioned, and so he takes down a volume of Scott and and pages through it and says, yes, it's still there. And, of course, uh, Wolf was counting on her readers saying, he's wrong. (laughs) That was the earlier generation. Nobody reads Scott anymore. It's interesting. If you look at the period at that time of which authors were influential internationally, not just in England, it's Scott and Byron. Yeah. Not Wordsworth. Uh, certainly not Coleridge, uh, the ones that are taught today. And yeah, Byron was just hugely popular, also influenced uh, operas and musicians setting his poems to musical, well, musical tributes to his poems, at least. Those were the big international figures. It's fascinating to me that things that translate well aren't necessarily the ones that last in a particular culture. So they had much more influence abroad in the long run than they finally did in England. Well, I remember an English literature professor of mine in college mentioning that James Fenmore Cooper was much more popular in France than he was in America. Mm. And he said probably because they did not have to read him in his native language. Yes, Mark Twain (laughs) famously made the case against Cooper's prose. (laughs) Yeah. So... um, Medieval knights in armor, um, Ivanhoe is all about that celebration of it, and that still continues on today with the Society for Creative Anachronism and all the you know people dressing up in costumes and even making chain mail by hand, I can imagine. Um, there's still a lot of interest in that whole sort of thing, but that's all invented by the Romantics and becomes a permanent part of culture, really. And after their time, if you said Gothic cathedral, nobody's going to say ugly anymore. They might say, well, I prefer, uh, 
you know, the prairie style of architecture, but they are not going to say uh, that Chartres is an ugly, stupid building built by ignorant people who didn't know proper aesthetics. It just goes without saying that the Middle Ages created some great works of beauty. Well, let's talk about another aspect of romanticism. Uh, this isn't a chronological thing. This is an overarching thing, something that we all viscerally understand about the word romanticism, and that is the emotion of it. The importance of the emotions and the uh, valuing of emotion. In the Enlightenment, in the period before this, uh, there was a very strong emphasis on controlling emotions, on being balanced and rational. They used the word enthusiasm negatively. To be enthusiastic was to be a little bit crazy, to be carried away by your emotions in a way that interfered with good thinking and led you into crimes and uh, ridiculous behavior and religious belief. And riots and crazes of all kinds were associated with uh, this enthusiastic sort of notion. Today, we urge people to be enthusiastic, you know, follow your dream, be enthusiastic. This is what graduates are taught, not uh, try to take a balanced view of the world and reason things out rationally. It's, you know, follow your heart. After a long period in which strong emotions were being dismissed or uh, criticized, the romantics create this huge backlash in which they said, oh, but it is so fun to just get crazy wild, you know, fall in love, uh, head over heels and have a mystical experience that just transports you out of this world and be filled with rage and go out and destroy the evil or become the evil, uh, just uh, be totally transfigured. What a lot of fun, even if you're doing it sort of artificially and prompting yourself to do it. Um, getting carried away is a good thing. Uh, letting go, opening up, just uh, cutting loose. That's a huge change in Western culture. Um, the nearest thing I can think of it is back in the old Dionysian cults of ancient Greece and Rome, uh, where women in particular were said to go out and dance into a frenzy in the worship of uh, Dionysus or Bacchus and uh, rip animals to shreds. And in one famous drama, uh, Rip Amanda's Shreds, um, there's a lot of Western history that consider this sort of thing as downright dangerous and to be avoided at all costs. Um, medieval mysticism was something different. That was narrowly confined to kind of connect with the divine spirit and um, trying to avoid connecting with the demonic spirit. That was definitely not a good thing if you became filled with enthusiasm for the works of the devil. Whereas in the Romantic period, uh, probably more interested in the devil than in the divine. And the whole notion of romantic longing and, you know, unsatisfied dealings where you're yearning for things, that's, of course, a central theme in Faust. As Goethe writes him, he is the insatiable person. He's always yearning for something more, uh, never, never fully satisfied. And um, that's that feeling that, that once you settle down, then you've lost your spark. You know, and that's still very much in popular culture today. Young people look at older people who have settled down and thought, oh, boy, they're dead before their time. If you're still alive, you've got something to reach out for. You're constantly uh, trying for new experiences, for more intense experiences and feelings, and whether it's uh, sexual or with drugs or getting in fights or 
crime or whatever it is. How about rock climbing? <laughs> okay. Although that takes a lot of discipline, <laughs> presence of mind and focus. But yeah, idealizing extremes of all kind. That's very romantic notion. And it's something that's just permanently now a part of our culture. And there are hints of this early on in the uh, mid-18th century, even in the midst of the Enlightenment. And the figure I like to signal out to discuss is Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was uh, somebody of very humble birth indeed and an extreme individualist. He was uh, somebody who did not get along well with other people. He was uncomfortable at parties. He made other people (laughs) intensely uncomfortable. He disapproved of the theater. He disapproved of high society. And he spent a lot of time examining his own feelings. Now, not like St. Augustine, who examined his feelings to find out, am I really wicked? Am I a sinner? Uh, Do I deserve salvation? Do I have evil impulses within me? Rousseau is just saying, well, how am I feeling? What's making me feel exalted? What's making me feel sorrowful? What's making me feel love? And Rousseau and Samuel Richardson are often paired, Richardson being an English novelist, and Rousseau, a French one, also a philosopher. And they both wrote a lot about frustrated love. And it's during this period that there also becomes a fascination with the notion that the most intense and truest kind of love is unrequited love, the love of a man for a woman, as always he's a man. Uh, who he cannot have for some reason or other. And that's the most moving and exciting, romantic sort of love. And um, that turns up in The New Heloise by Rousseau, which was one of the huge bestsellers of the time, almost unreadable now. It's just a ghastly. There are two things that emerged that are connected with medievalism in this period that uh, go along this line. And one of them is the celebration of Abelard and Heloise's romance. He was, of course, a medieval philosopher, scholar who seduced his teenage pupil. Uh, He was her tutor and uh, actually got her pregnant and then went into a monastery and renounced the world and all that. And she wrote letters to him. She never fell out of love with him and wanted to continue. He was something of a sadist, by the way. But um, he kept exhorting her to you know, follow the life of God and so on. And she kept uh, writing to him and saying uh, that how much she still loved him and how important their love was. And that story, the letters were preserved, and in the romantic period, they became hugely popular, and there are lots of pictures and plays and music and novels, and, and including Rousseau's, obviously, that uh, go back and re-explore this story. So they romanticized what was really a pretty sordid tale. Lovers still go today to visit the tomb of Abelard and Heloise in Paris and leave flowers on it and so on. It's, um, it's one of those things that just permanently got transformed. I'd say that Romeo and Juliet, to some degree, will fall in this category, too. Although the play was very, very, very popular. Um, in fact, one of the interesting things about it is there's a copy of the first folio I think it's in the library at Oxford. I'm not sure which university it was, but they say that if you look at this volume and uh, just open it at random where it wants to open, the place that was most read and where the book is, the edges show where is Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) Terrifically popular. But part of what Romeo and Juliet about is 
what's wrong with romantic love? It's the idea of uh, falling in love prematurely when you're too young to really know what's going on and uh, leading to total despair and horror. And we talked about this before, I talked about love in literature, that much of the earlier writing about love in, in Shakespeare's time and well into the early Romantic period, these are stories about the exotic, exciting, horrible things that happen to people. It's sort of like people today watching a documentary of some uh, horrible suffering that's going on, say, of somebody exploring the Amazon and, and just barely escaping with their lives. It's not something you really want to do. It's not something you recommend people do, but it's exciting to read about. And that's exactly how love was treated, both in China and Japan and India and also in Western Europe for a long time. It was exciting. It was something people understood something about, but it was something you didn't really expect to have in your own life. You got married for dynastic reasons, if you were rich or just because your families were allied or you managed to unite a couple of pieces of property together or, the, you know, you got along well enough. But the parents usually had a very large say, sometimes the total say in who you married. So a romance was escape. It was not integrated into the idea of what your life should be. And so Romeo and Juliet is a pretty horrible story. At the end, they're told the important thing is to stop this feuding because these two families have been killing each other. And the important moral that comes out of it is, well, these two managed to get together. You two, you should as well. And that's, of course, tip of the hat to Queen Elizabeth. And monarchs generally hate feuding because they don't want their citizens fighting against each other. They want them united against the common enemy outside. Mm -hmm. And anyway, um that's one of them. And another one is a little more obscure, and that is the troubadour poets. Troubadour poets uh, wrote in Provençal, which is a language that almost died out under circumstances I won't explore now, but which is a horrible story, wiped out by northern French. But the troubadour poets um, wrote a lot of love poetry and are responsible for a great many of the images and ideas that we associate with love. But the romantic scholars studying the troubadours decided that the real essence of troubadour love poetry was unrequited love. The idea of you longing for the woman, you're expressing all these hopes and you're, you're dying of love and you never quite get there. And so there are some very influential scholarly works that argue that true Courtly love is always unsatisfied love. You never really get around to having sex or maybe even to kissing. It's just this longing for the distant object. Um, when I did my own scholarship on this, I decided that I was completely baloney, that uh, there were plenty of troubadours who were all about getting it on. Mm. And um, my first book is actually an attempt to answer that whole thing, which I translated a number of tales, which I call body tales from the courts of medieval France, which were influenced by these earlier love traditions, but in which there was a lot of sex going on. So anyway, the romantics also picked that up. And the idea of frustrated romantic longings are very much a part of a lot of the 19th century romanticism as well. And Rousseau certainly was right at the heart of that, although he's torn about it because he can't resist giving into emotion. But he also has this enlightenment attitude that there's something wrong with this. But his other thing is he was very attracted to nature. 
and puts a lot of emphasis. He's the one that said that, you know, the best education would be sitting on, on a log with a teacher on one end and the pupil on the other, you know, out in nature. And, um, he thought that civilization in general was probably a bad idea. <laughs> Getting back to, to the natural spirit was an important thing. And he is famous for having climbed up a mountain just to see the view and written about it. And people sometimes claim that he was the first person to do that. I don't believe that for a minute. But he was the first famous person to write about it and make a fad for it. Hiking. So we can say that Rousseau invented hiking for fun. <laughs> People used to hike because they had to get someplace. And especially if you had to go through the mountains or a desert or the forest, that was horrible. That was the scary part. That was where the demons were or the animals or the robbers. That was the bad thing about traveling was having to get out into the wilderness. Rousseau is the first writer who really celebrates wilderness and says, God, look at that magnificent waterfall plunging down hundreds of feet and crashing on those rocks below. Look at those fearsome mountains rising up into the clouds. And wow, that changes European culture from uh, a preference for their nature to be in tidy little enclosed gardens uh, or a nice little orchard with some, you know, people lying down under a dallying with each other um, into this uh, love for wilderness, which leads directly into modern environmentalism and the national park system and, and you know, huge influences. And when people uh, disdain romanticism, I say, you know, think about the preservation of nature and the love for the wild. That's a gift that we owe directly to both Rousseau and the people who followed him in the Romantic movement. Well, certainly. And we'll talk about the people who follow him later in the Romantic movement next time. I want to wrap this up and move on to other topics next time, including exoticism. That's a huge one. Uh, how religion factors into all of this. Individualism. Other topics. I assume we'll talk about Romantic poets. Wordsworth and Keats and, and all of that in relation to some of this. Well, I don't want to talk more about love itself because there's a lot we haven't said about the romantic conception of love. Okay, <laughs> we'll talk about that too. But we're going to save it for next time and uh, wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day. That's coming right up. I think we'll be posting the next podcast on Valentine's Day so you'll be able to listen to how love figures into all of this on the day if you uh, download it that day. Well, thank you, Paul. All right. Thanks, Tom. Talk to you later. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com with free shipping. Thanks for listening.